to surf the uh, the headlines a little bit so it kind of slows down we like to take a little time off and then when it heats back up we're here for all your hot takes and your needs so lots been going down since last episode a uh, couple of headlines starting with otis u.s bought half a billion more doses of the pfizer vaccine to distribute out to the world uh, that's good and all but it looks like they're catching a lot of flack a lot of developed countries are catching a lot of flack for not doing more uh, particularly trying to figure out how to get these donated vaccines into the actual arms of these people in way underdeveloped uh, situations and countries. So keep an eye on that as that kind of develops in the coming months as COVID disappears for the first world, but not the rest of the world. Uh, big news coming out of the Middle East and Israel, uh, Netanyahu, Bibi Netanyahu, prime minister for the last 15, is that right? No, longer four, than that. Four, oh, 14? I thought it was 14. Yeah, 12, 15, 14, 15 years he's been the prime minister of Israel. Uh, he finally had a coalition form against him in the Israeli government that has now booted him out and replaced him. Uh, we do not know as of yet whether his replacement will actually be any better than he was, uh, but we do at least, I saw the first some different kind of language coming out that at, at least acknowledged that Netanyahu did aggravate and annoy and upset uh, Democrats, and that's not necessarily always a good thing. So maybe you'd see some more bipartisanship coming out of the government. However, not so good overnight, actually, Israeli airstrikes started again after supposedly fire balloons were launched attacking Israel. Uh, again, Israel responds with overwhelming force. More news out of the Middle East. Iran is actually expected to have a new president as well. This is something to really keep an eye on. Uh, Ibrahim Raisi, I believe is how you pronounce his name. So for those that don't know, Iran does have a president. A lot of people don't realize that because it is authoritarian. There is the almighty Al Khamenei, who is like the religious leader of the country, but then you technically do have a head of government who's the president. Uh, they do kind of have a say in things and, and can have some clout depending on what the reputation is, but make no doubt that the uh, Al Khamenei, the religious leader, does make the final decisions. But something to keep an eye on, especially as we have the uh, nuclear agreement being reproposed and supposedly making good progress on. So last but not least, Juneteenth is now a federal holiday. Well, right. well well, yeah, once Biden signs it. Once Biden <laughs> signs it. Um, a lot of worry about veto on this. So. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. We'll see. Was anyone, can I just straw poll, were we surprised that it passed? So, like, unanimous, I was, I was like, in the Senate? I was surprised yeah. it passed that quick. I was surprised it was unanimous. Yeah, yeah, That's unanimous in the Senate. I didn't expect. That's weird. But I don't know, man. I think we're kind of getting to this point in our government where it's becoming so dysfunctional that every now and then, they have to throw us a bone to kind of keep the peace. It's almost like the Saudis do when they, they give out the Saudis give out annual dividends to their population because they have so much oil money. It keeps the peace. You get a stimulus every year. So that's what America is going to have to start doing now. But don't call it universal basic income because that, that's socialism. We'll call it something else. That's all I got for headlines. Anybody got anything else? Good. Biden goes to Europe, baby. So Biden headed over overseas across the big pond for the big G7 summit. Uh, for those that don't know, that's the uh, what, what's the scale that you, is it your economic, just your economic output, the top seven economic output, basically top seven countries of GDP. Essentially, their economies produce the most. They all get together to uh, make sure they're running the world correctly, which in most cases they are not. So that's why Biden headed there. Got a lot of just good discussion about, I think, COVID coming out of COVID, what that looks like 
This is again where we had more announcements uh, from other developed countries about donations to lesser developed countries. Um, and so interestingly enough, there was some rhetoric coming out of here about uh, China and kind of how their development um, and their economy potentially catching up and past the United States in the coming decades, how that looks and, and any worry that may come out of that. It's kind of surprising to see that there because uh, the NATO meeting, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization was actually meeting a week after the G7 summit. So you'd think a lot more of that language would come out of there. Um, but it does go to show you that uh, the top seven countries in the in the world are starting to pay attention to China's growth um, and, and their reaction to things. So once he left the G7, he headed, like I said, to NATO. Well, first he, he did a pit stop and had tea with the queen. They go where's the aviators the whole time. Right. <laughs> Walked in front of her, beside her, didn't give a shit. Gave her a hug. <laughs> invited her to the White House. Uh, I think they first met in like 83, man. Gosh. Yeah. My girl's uh, like been around. Bro, the like... stuff she has seen, that's crazy, <laughs> man. Mm-mm. Like the way the world. She's been, at, she's been queen since Eisenhower. That's wild, dude. Amazing. Um, While we're on the UK and G7, Boris had a slip up. He had multiple slip ups. So <laughs> boy. Uh, this is like the big news in the international like Guardian BBC. So like. Obviously, G7 is being hosted in the UK. This is their first time doing it, not as a member of the European Union. It's your chance to to show off. And he's spending the whole time just, just begging, just begging the US, begging the other countries for trade deals, for support. And of course, it just came out that the main vaccine they're using in the UK, the Oxford AstraZeneca, doesn't work for variant D. And so he's talking about they need to produce billion vials to account for it and it's it was just a really embarrassing time for boris and i i think anyone who like believed in brexit if you're not you know getting pessimistic now uh you probably aren't paying attention what is the uh status of brexit we got like a brexit update like i know they're are they out like they're officially out. yeah uk is out yeah they're they're out yeah um the final thing they had to resolve uh, was the the fishing deals, and then immediately people started violating the fishing deals. I imagine so. Uh, it's very so hard like, to enforce those kind of rules as well. Yeah, right. And and the other problem is like you know UK's economy was premised on trade with the EU, and them kind of acting as a financial hub. But um, one of the big debates during Brexit, one of the kind of famous statements, is we don't want the United States chlorinated chicken. Because there was a certain quality of good that they expect in the UK being a yeah, member of the EU. Well, yeah. you know, you're an island nation. And so now you have no buddies to your <laughs> east to help you out. Guess whose chicken you're importing? You're getting our chlorine-ass chicken. Garrison, <laughs> you're a fan of chicken. So I got hey. to ask you. How do it's you not the Popeye's chicken either, bro. It's, it's like not. the fucking KFC chicken, bro. You're getting the Burger King, bro. <laughs> the Burger King. I know. When, when we were in uh, Berlin, I know Garrison was, he loved the chicken nuggets. The, he went to, he's bro, like, I got to taste chicken nuggets natural chicken nuggets, dog. And the ketchup. The ketchup is so much better, dude. Well, I'm like, well, UK doesn't have it anymore. All we got to do is pass some laws that say you can't put fake sugar and ketchup. And is it this easy? Can't get it done. No, because Tyson's got a stranglehold monopoly on the chicken industry, bro. <laughs> Welcome to America. Hey, Jesus. Okay. Other thing, uh, big thing to talk about is that the G7 and, and the NATO summits, uh, Biden made a strong play on infrastructure. As we all know, his domestic agenda right now is primarily focused on that. Pretty much the House and the Senate are both primarily focused on getting some type of infrastructure legislation passed. Uh, Big news this week is, I believe this week or last week, was that he stopped working with 
uh, one of the representatives of basically McConnell's old head traditional Republicans started working with another group of about 20 uh, bipartisan senators to see if they can get any language hammered out that they can agree on regarding infrastructure. Everything that we're hearing uh, sounds like they, they're just not meeting at the right price. There's too much. Democrats are too high and Republicans are too low. This is leading some uh, progressive Democrats in the party to start getting ready to take their own route, um, take their own, take infrastructure, passing infrastructure into their own hands uh, through reconciliation. So supposedly rumor is that Bernie, why he's so quiet right now is because he's leading that caucus um, or having that language prepared if they need to start going that route. Most likely headed that way. We'll see how that kind of plays out over the summer. Like I said, I think Nancy's estimate was that she wanted it passed by the end of this month in the House. Not happening. Even if it does, the Senate, Schumer wants it done before the August recess. Highly doubt it. Mm-hmm. If, it gets out of the, if it gets out of the House late June, I still highly doubt it. Because they probably shut down for a week for July 4th. So just throw that week away. So it's not so probably really look at late August. Uh, going into September, it's going to be really hot button if we don't have infrastructure passed because that's going to be uh, a massive part of the midterm elections is whether he can get that legislation passed and have people run on that platform that they were able to get you know massive infrastructure funding completed. So um, it's interesting that he's taking that now to an international level, uh, bringing this up to other countries to spur investment, not only in their countries, but also internationally through international investment. So to me, it kind of looks like he's, since Republicans aren't being cooperative, that he's taking infrastructure and his idea of infrastructure to an international level so that if on a global scale, people can compete in infrastructure gains that the United States will be forced to, this will force Republicans' hands so that they don't fall behind. Interesting dynamic. I like the strategy. I like the political playbook on that one. Maybe whoever came up with that, I, I applaud them. Uh, there is some pros that come to keeping you know, career lifer politicians and among your ranks that come up with good ideas like this, uh, good branding occasionally. So my confidence on how this international infrastructure language stays in the conversation long-term, I'm a little more pessimistic towards we'll probably something else will happen globally and we'll move on to that probably. So one more thing about NATO, kind of the main headline that I saw was they've adjusted their position on China. They didn't go as far as we NATO's position is still on Russia and will probably be on Russia forever because that's why NATO was founded. But it is interesting to see the shift, I think, in NATO's mission and 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 policy reach. Like NATO was founded as a as a deterrent against all out nuclear warfare and containing the Soviet Union. And now it's it seems to be be shifted almost entirely to cyber warfare. And I mean, that makes sense, um, what we've experienced in our own elections and what's going on around the world. For us North Carolinians, we didn't have gas for like a week because of a cyber attack from a, a hacker group. Um, I, I think that especially considering NATO's reasons, like one thing they said was about China's naval outreach. China now has ships operating um, as far west as the Mediterranean. Um, and so when we talk about like policies of regional hegemony and containment and everything that our, you know, our policy has been about, we're spending billions and billions of dollars to keep ships off the coast of China for this reason. And clearly, you know, it's it's not working. We're losing ground. And so, yeah, I we're just continuing to get more antagonistic towards China and they're continuing to push themselves. So just something to watch. I think an interesting caveat to that was or not a caveat interesting kind of piggybacking on that was part of that language that biden had them say to to be a, more aggressive towards china was that through these 
through cyber warfare, that that would constitute basically traditional warfare. And then again, what is it? Article five of NATO that states, if you attack one of us, you attack all of us. He wanted that language, which again, take it with a grain of salt, just because somebody takes down somebody's power network doesn't mean World War III is going to pop off necessarily. But I do think it was a more important step uh, to taking cyber attacks a little more seriously to have that included where basically if you launch a cyber attack on me, that's justification for all of NATO going to war with you. So I think it's important to have that language because obviously we see what China's doing and what their primary form of, of warfare is. And it's very concerning, especially with our nation being how reliant we are in technology, basically the number one country in the world that are everything, everything that we do on a daily basis is connected to the internet and to technology that can be hacked and taken down. So that's uh, concerning. So I like that he took that step. I think it's important that he's still getting good focus on international issues while also kind of balancing domestic life. Before we started the podcast, you know, we, we may have not hit the record button. Garrison, uh, said something like it was business as usual at this conference between Putin and Biden. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with what he said. Um, I was joking with a friend earlier. If you read the quotes that they gave when they exited, they said, uh, we were able to have a very uh, pleasant meeting, um, but we left with disagreements. Well, duh, like, I would hope so. <laughs> if we have an unpleasant meeting, you know, God, God knows what that means. And if we didn't have disagreements, I also don't know what that means. So I don't know. The thing the thing that was weird for me about this meeting is like when Trump met with Putin, it was it was almost a bigger news story just because you never knew what bullshit they were working on together, either subtly or, or overtly. Whereas with Biden, it it does feel a little bit more just like business as usual. Like Obama met with Biden or met with Putin. Bush met with Putin. So uh, it hasn't really been leaked what's coming out of this. I know the the main thing they were talking about, again, is cyber warfare. And it doesn't seem like they made any good ground on that. Putin accused the U.S. of conducting cyber warfare. Obviously, we're accusing them of conducting cyber warfare. It just feels like we're in a bit of a a cyber cold war and these meetings are just going to keep happening to sustain world peace. That's a very accurate description of cyber cold war. That's exactly what it feels like. At this point with our relationship with both Putin and Russia, what the whole thing is just always going to be a stalemate. You know, there's not, we're, I think we're so diametrically opposed and, but both, well, obviously the U S is, you know, we have very strong positions, but Putin and his personality and, the way he runs his government is very much like a strongman personality. So I, I feel like every time, I mean, during Trump's presidency, like Logan said, I felt like that was a little bit more on edge because we had like a rogue agent in the, uh, in the white house. But generally I feel like all these meetings are just kind of just to keep relations like status quo. Like I don't think ever, like really many times meeting with Putin is very productive. <laughs> I think well, it's, it's the shit that I want. I want to know what gets said behind a closed door. Like when you read like books and shit, you can kind of get like some snippets of conversation and stuff like that. But obviously we're going to do the circumpompous for the cameras, but I want to know yeah. like behind the closed door, are you like, bro, get the fuck out of my elections or like, are we, what kind of pressure are you putting on them is what I want to know. I like the, um, there was a good quote from Alexei Navalny who he was asked after the press conference, what are you going to do about arresting political rivals? And he responded, what about Guantanamo? And it was it was this nice moment where like pre-Trump, 
you know, I think a lot of people on the left were more actively critical of NATO. And historically, NATO is pretty, pretty disastrous for Russian relations. There's, you know, we kept adding members after we promised not to, we kept infringing. And, and in some ways, NATO is a direct factor in why Putin feels he needs to expand uh, his territorial claims, uh, cyber or, or literal. Him hitting, hitting us back with that was a little bit like, oh, uh, yeah, like we should still be critical of the U.S. in this whole thing. Uh, Russia is an authoritarian regime and its direct arrest of political rivals and allowing Belarus to do what they did. That's all pretty messed up and we're not doing that stuff. Do you guys think NATO is, is it fulfilling a purpose at this point more than just a symbolic there, one? There are some members of NATO whose alliance is un- invaluable. You got like Germany, France, UK, obviously. So I think that there's this core, which is essentially the, the, the founding countries of it, that serve a very good purpose. And then like kind of like Logan hinted to, they expanded this thing to be assholes. And now they're dealing with the repercussions of it. The entire existence mm-hmm. of it was because of the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And then, then they and the Soviet Union dissolves. Putin is not going to stop until basically the Soviet Union has its red curtain back. I mean, again, and then you, you just grow NATO at a, an unprecedented amount. You piss them off. And then, like Logan said, you destroy your relations with each other. And to a certain extent, I can kind of agree with him to play devil's advocate. I can kind of say, you know, based on that, well, sure, why don't we go slide into Ukraine? So, I mean, I don't really blame them. We're always going to be at odds with each other. It's almost like a big brother, little brother. It just, to me, it gets really worrisome where now you kind of have like them and China bubbles like coming and going coming and going like who's gonna who's gonna create a world war this time who's gonna become a real issue this time i mean i think nato could be shrunk but right now it's basically turned into an economic powerhouse more so than militarily i just want to pose the question if it you know like you said it was its original purpose was to combat communism and the expansion of soviet influence and now that the soviet union is gone does nato actually serve any real purpose other than for show really i mean like yeah i mean the that to me, the asshole thing would be to do would be to dissolve it and call it something else similar to NAFTA because that's basically the purpose it's serving. But I mean, the U.S. likes having that language there. And there are definitely, definitely some Eastern European countries that enjoy that Article 5 benefit because it's probably the only mm-hmm. thing saving their ass from Putin being on their back door. I mean, again, there's 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 a lot of politics to it, obviously, because it's, it's international politics. So while there may be core, core countries that are actually serve a purpose to benefit us, there's also that group of countries that are essentially there for us to protect and therefore stop communism from spreading. So I guess to Jordan's question, it is a little weird that like you meet with your strategic military partners and less than a week later, you meet with the person who you just condemned that weekend. I don't know. That's a little snaky. That's a little, I don't know. It's strange. And it's international politics, baby. I know, but it's, I don't know. The other thing is, um, uh, to your point, Garrison, I did read that like we, the United States got a lot of pushback from the European countries on including the China language, but they were unanimous and even like vocally supportive and asking for continued antagonism of, of Russia and NATO policy. So it's, it is, it is weird. Like Jordan, you said, like it was founded to combat communism and keep the Soviet Union back, but the fact that Russia has turned into what it has and the fact that Europe feels genuinely threatened by them uh, for oil reasons or military or otherwise, 
I don't know. It does feel like it's become more necessary than it may have been from 2000 to 2016, but it definitely hasn't the same utility that it had before. It's all, it's all economic. So to even tie into how I'm telling you, it's like an economic organization. Biden was actually, when he was pushing these international infrastructure ideas at the G7 and at NATO, some of his ideas were combating the Silk Road initiative that China's doing. So he's literally like, not only are like, hey, repair your own bridges, but write micro development loans to Ethiopia so they can build bridges as well. Because if you don't, China's going to, China's going to give them a horrible loan, and then they're going to go bankrupt to China. And then essentially communism spreads that way. It's scary. To me, it's like, I don't, I don't want to use the word scary, but it's like some real cold war shit going down, man. Like as far as this like weird middle ground we're in. To me, it's like the graph where you, Jordan, I don't know if you've seen this being like history, but I like watching these videos where it shows like, but basically it'll be like a country the size of a bubble on a graph and it shows like how they grow and shrink like as like the decades fly, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it's, I feel like we're in that weird transition period right now where it's like you got Russia, China, US, we're like, mm, US is kind of growing, but like China's also like really expanding. I just I don't really think Russia's doing much, man. Russia's kind of getting into that North Korea territory. We got to like kick our shin and we're like, okay, we'll take a sanction off. Like leave us alone and go back to what you were doing. We got other stuff to worry about. That is a good metaphor. I hadn't thought about that, but they are, they are getting closer to being like a North Korea than, yeah. I don't know, like a functional Western democracy. Real like, like China's the much more like the stuff they're pulling and, and the way that or worries me is it's almost like we talk about with Republicans, how they fall in line. The Chinese are a very devote, and dedicated people and when they like when something is entrenched in their culture as is their belief that they are like the intelligent species um i mean they all it's impressive they stop at nothing and it shows time and time again all throughout history so um i think relations with them is what we should really put most of our attention to but again you're gonna have russia acting like a a little brother so i think i would push back on that description of china because i think most citizens of countries particularly countries that are growing and or have a lot of economic power probably feel that. I mean, I feel like you could use that way to describe Americans. Yeah, but like, I feel like we, we like we bitch too much over like race and sex and trans rights and all that. And they don't care about that over there. Like, dude, we're just trying to be like number one. They don't have social issues because their society is controlled. Obvious, China is communist on well, on paper, but I would I don't really think necessarily in practice. Capitalist. But yeah. So like so we're not really what are we containing? I guess I guess we're really just fighting like to hold our spot as hegemon like we're not really fighting an ideology like we were in the 20th century we're, we're fighting trying we're hoping that china doesn't do capitalism better than we we did or yeah. we do i mean i would say we're our, we're fighting authoritarianism to a certain extent yeah but that's not communism that's an important that's a distinction because again you could say okay they're challenging our hegemon but it's not through communism it's just through authoritarianism mm-hmm which opens mm-hmm. the entire spectrum up. So I think it's important to highlight that difference. Well, I think, well, one part of this is, yeah, that distinction is important. And I, I would, you know, I'd say China's the ultimate uh, end of capitalism. I mean, capitalism is about maximizing efficiency more than anything else. And China has made an ultra efficient economy. And the way they've done that is, is through planning. I mean, it's a state-centered capitalism and it's very in line with if we think of China, like historiographically, like it's an ancient culture and they've they've had time to build. They, their sense of time is different than what we have in the United States. And that means that when we talk about containment, what we're really talking about are ways that we can 
disrupt their planning. Because um, their economy is more dependent on state planning than ours, it can be less flexible to disruption. Ours is, is much more generated almost off of disruption and reacting to it. And, and so I think, you know, when we talk about containment from like a naval perspective, that's about like physical space that ships are occupying. Uh, your ship can't go through. We have a ship in the way. And we've had like really close calls over the past few years from Chinese ships almost hitting U.S. ships and vice versa. But I, I think from my understanding, that's the general idea. And and for listeners who might think this sounds pro-China in any way, it's not. I think China represents the ultimate sin of capitalism, one where, you know, a small uh, I don't want to use the word cabal, but a small cohort of individuals at the top are mandating an economy which severely enriches some people and leaves other people in complete destitution, enforced state abortion, um, capturing, killing, and mutilating religious minorities. Ch- China, is, China is an awful model for the globe. And mm-hmm. the more that people become invested in China, it's just like capitalism, um, they grow. And so any opportunity we have to prevent investment in their in their plan is it's a it's almost like we're working against exponential growth at this point i i don't i don't know if it's possible the way things are going but yeah i think china represents the ultimate capitalism yeah and i and i think our the united states has we've allowed that to happen and we we don't call them out on their human rights violations and we because we are so dependent on their we've become so dependent on their economy that we and trade and because of just the interconnectedness of the world's economies now we are dependent on that therefore we don't even call them out on things that like those human human rights uh, violations genocides and mass killings and essentially enslavements of minority groups in that country and we we've just kept quiet because that's and I, I think that just kind of proves even your point even more logan like we've just uh, capitalism has and that country has really taken shape in its most insidious form and if we don't do anything, if we allow that to happen and continue not to call them out or continue to allow them to grow at the pace that they're growing, I, I think we will be replaced as the world hegemon. And I don't want to see that happen. I don't want to live in a world in which China is the new United States, um, but it's up no. to, you know, it's up to us to ensure that doesn't happen. It's not just about trade, right? I think people should be more concerned about China when it comes also to like human rights violations and our inability to call them out on the things that they do and the atrocities that they commit against the people in their country. Um, and we just turn a blind eye because we don't feel like dealing with it. They do a lot of bullshit too. <laughs> Between currency manipulation and mm. technology theft, patent mm. theft, mm. like shit needs to be put to a stop. Like not only are they catching up to us, but like we are doing a lot of dumb shit to allow them to catch up to us. Yep. I mean, so this book I'm reading, The 100-Year Marathon, that's about their strategy to replace America by 2049. They talk about in this how there's still arms deals on the books from the 70s, the mid and, the mid and late 70s, early 80s, uh, when we were still propping them up against the Soviet Union because they were having uh, Sino-Asia border conflicts. And we were like, okay, let's get something going. So we were funneling weapons out there to them. Those contracts are still on the books. We're still giving weapons to them. And I'm like, it's like basic things like this, like, hey, guys, we should probably be concerned about this at some point. I mean, it's no different than looking at us in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're getting killed with the same weapons we provided them with. It's an American thing, I guess. Yeah. Just can't get enough of it. Here's my question. And Jordan, you may be able to answer this because you're the lawyer. 
what do you do when you start pressuring about human rights violations and then they clap back at us with like either Guantanamo Bay or the BLM movement, which is what they've been referencing to a lot lately because it's such a, a sensitive topic, especially on an international scale, that we are so embarrassed on an international scale because of our treatment of black people in this country and the public outcry that sparks from that, that I feel like we just kind of shut up like a puppy in the corner if they bring that up. That's literally what they do. We try to say anything about them enslaving Uyghurs down there where they say, well, what about what about black people? You kill them basically on a systematic level by the police. And like, how do you even respond to that? Like, how do you, that's like somebody directly challenging your authority. And that's something they haven't done in the last couple of decades. Now they're almost emboldened. Yeah. And I think this kind of give a comparable example. I, I, and there's a lot of like new scholarship coming up about this, uh, the same idea, but dealing with the civil rights movement in the sixties. Um, a lot of scholars have, you know, switched to, Really, the reason that the civil right we got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, a big reason of that was geopolitical, was about, you know, how are we fighting communism and how are we going to say that the U.S. is, you know, for freedom and individual liberty and et cetera, when we have second class citizens in our country and we don't allow them to use the same facilities as we do. And that particularly our U.S. presidents like Kennedy and LBJ were feeling immense international pressure to pass these kinds of pieces of legislation so that they could then turn around and say, hey, yeah, we are better than communism. So I think that's a really great point, Garrison. And I think what that means is that we have to take accountability for our own, you know, shortcomings and our own historical mistakes and rectify them. And then you turn around and continue the fight, right? So yes, it does, it does force us to look introspectively at BLM and Guantanamo Bay and our crisis at the border, at the southern border, and all the other human rights violations and human rights issues that we have here in our own country. And we just have to get to a point to fix those and then turn around and continue, you know, putting a lot of pressure on China. And this is, I mean, essentially what happened in the 60s, the Soviet Union would always kind of, anytime, you know, we were for these newly decolonized countries that were cropping up when they were kind of deciding who are they going to ally with the US or the Soviet Union. You know, many of those countries were minority majority countries. And so, you know, the Soviet Union's argument was, hey, why would you want to go to, you know, to the capitalism way or the US way? Look how they treat minorities in their country. And that caused created enough pressure for the US to, tr- to look for ways to rectify that, at least on paper, here in our country. So I, I think it's a really good point. And I think we need to get to a point that we are very proactive about rec- fixing those issues in our, our own country because these are they're more than social issues, they're more than racial issues, and they're more than domestic issues. Things like this have a, a tendency and a way to become global polit- uh, political issues. And we can't, we have to be able to walk the walk and talk the talk. And so if we don't, that allows countries like China to continue doing what they're doing. We, we can't call them out for it. So we have to we have to fix ourselves so that we can actually hold these other countries accountable. Jill Lepore out of Harvard is doing really good work on, on those studies uh, that Jordan mentioned for people who are looking to do some Googling. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with Jordan. It starts at home. And I, I think one thing that is really shameful about Trump's presidency is the way that um, we, we gave up our ethical agency. You know, there's that famous Fox News interview where Trump said, you know, we, you think we haven't killed a lot of people. It's true, but that's not the way to, to go about this. Um, the way to go about it is, uh, in, in direct response to you, Garrison is to say two wrongs don't make a right. Like, Mm. yeah, we have shit to fix at home. We talk about that all the time on this podcast, 
But the same ethic that motivates us to critique U.S. domestic policy motivates us to critique international policy. And we have to have a consistent articulation of our ethic, which is difficult and and probably impossible in a democracy, but the struggle to work towards something like that is the opportunity that's ahead of us. I feel like the struggle is democracy. I feel like we don't talk about that enough. You have to be able to commit to actually making it a reality. You can't just say, oh, yeah, we're equal, and then, Especially the bigger your system gets as well, because then the more complex backgrounds you have, the more ethnicities you have, the more cultures you have that need to to blend and get along. And so so it's it's the complicated path, man. Easy path is authoritarianism. So everybody shut up or die and everybody gets in line. (laughs) That that wraps up the uh, main presentation. No Matt Gates update this week. Matt's laying low. Uh, He's really sweating. He's got till the end of July to find out if he's going to get charged or not. Do got a Florida update, though, last week. Uh, Florida legislature banned critical race theory being taught in public classrooms. Also, like, how does race intersect other parts of other social issues? Like, how do we, how does race affect housing? How does race affect education? How does race interplay with criminal justice? How does, you know, the idea that essentially race matters everywhere. <laughs> and so that theory, a huge part of that theory then would be the belief in systemic racism. That exactly. Systems can be engineered to target a certain minority, ethnicity, whatever, to, to hinder their development. And that's a that's a great example, Garrison, because, uh, and as a counterfactual to what Florida did, terms like systematic racism or white privilege, terms that are very common within our vernacular, are byproducts of what has been boiling into critical race theory. Right. Like the, it has all, I mean, it's the same thing that we saw with transgender rights, where these things were already present in academic literature 20 years ago. And we slowly get the words in our lexicon, understand what they mean, take them into our lives. But it's interesting that once we can name the theory that contains them, all of a sudden we have something to attack. Right. You know, it's much easier to attack a name than the theories byproducts, which are already present and widely accessible in society. Yep. And it's, it's, I would, I would argue that it's almost the media that does this because it has to keep transforming the monster to keep the attention of the crowd. So as these transform into different titles, different things that have, like you said, have been in academic literature and been in this environment. And then finally they hit the big, the big home run dinger, critical race theory triggered. Florida's taking it upon themselves to ban it in the classroom. I don't know. I guess it's just going to reinforce the white kids that they're the only opinion that matters. I'm, I don't know. I don't, it's to me, it's, it's, these are almost like bathroom bills at, the, at this point. Like really dude, you need a, of all the shit that's wrong in Florida right now that you could fix you're going to ban critical race theory in the classroom of all the shit that we could be doing right now. Thanks. I feel like we could do a Republican villain of the week segment. Cause (laughs) like every week it's something else. Some jackass dude. Anti-Dr. Seussers. It's like transgender people every other week. This week it's critical race theory. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Florida's doing that. But, uh, as well, and it's, it's not only Florida. I, it's, I mean, they're the most recent, but multiple other states have also banned critical race theory from being taught in schools. Also, like, let's, let's quickly say critical race theory as like an academic subject is not being taught in fourth grade. Like it just isn't. (laughs) So like, it isn't even like a problem that we need to address. And like, yeah, maybe as kids are getting into middle school and high school, like teachers could maybe not critical race theory itself maybe maybe some ideas of it like how race intersects other social issues could be brought up so 
I don't really know how they're going to police that. Like critical race theory is such a wide academic net that I don't know how they actually police that or create standards. My my thing also is like, and I think the three of us can definitely, and basically any college student can attest to this, that when we learn of theories in the academic environment, I don't just learn one theory. I learn like three to right. eight. Like, yeah. I mean, I'm not, and then, then I'm told you create your own opinion. You take from what you like and you piece it together. It's not like I'm coming in and kissing some priest's feet and being taught critical race theory, like a religion. I mean, it just shows you the demonification of these words and just the overreaction and, and just how to get somebody reacted and fired up. And some poor guy in Alabama has never heard of critical race theory. And now he thinks it's going to wipe his whole family off the map. And Well, and I, I think it's just even just the like language of it to call it a theory like it's not a theory <laughs> it's like a right. proven like race intersects everything and like i i don't see that's a proven thing and like then it becomes obviously a rule. so it's actually well, a critical and, race rule <laughs> but like and obviously like different scholars the way that they approach critical race theory and like maybe the depths of in which race intersects different things like there's maybe room for debate about those things but like on the whole this is not like up for debate. Like this is, it's, it's a pretty, like you can look at data anywhere and see that, Dude, you know, race intersects saying, everything. By saying it doesn't exist. You're basically telling me like the Jim Crow era and slavery never happened. That's basically what you're admitting to, because you're saying if critical race theory doesn't exist then social constructs and political systems can't be engineered to target minorities and selective groups. That's all that's been done since the beginning of history. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you used the word constructs, Garrison, because this is the, this, this is the most important part of critical race theory that differentiates it from other modes of analyzing race in societies, that it's it's deconstructive in nature. And, and really, we owe a lot of this to like Ibram Kendi and really him for popularizing this. You all have probably heard the distinction between anti-racist and non-racist. That, that comes out of critical race theory. And so the danger, if you're a Florida or a Texas or any anywhere in the United States, the danger is that it is it asks you to deconstruct society. It asks you to look at the ways we've constructed society and look at how race permeates those constructions. And I think, you know, I agree with you all, obviously, that generally critical race theory as applied is really useful. We should make our institutions anti-racist, not just non-racist. There's also examples of where, like, you see what's happening at Princeton in the classics department, removing Greek and Latin as language requirements that's an area where we can say, okay, did you did you deconstruct too far? Did you deconstruct something where you're actually going to damage the whole of a field and therefore damage society? I think critical race theory, I, I agree with the general precept, but I can I can see if you're a Republican, it's like, oh my God, you're actually asking people to change the establishment. Not just policies, but look at the establishment itself and critique it. Right. That's that's risky. That's risky. Oh, if you're that's in power. Risky. It, the other thing is there is a, there is a line of too woke. Like you can be too woke and like it does to a point, I think get taken too far. It's certain, you know, like remove, like if we remove the like Greek and Latin, like I just, I don't know. I feel like that is like a little bit like, okay, maybe you shouldn't remove that. Like those still have an important bearing on the field of the classics. Therefore, you know, we should just remove it just to be, so we can say like, Oh, look, I think you a can't lot of have things... these discussions if you ban it in schools. You can't exactly. have these dialogues. Exactly. Yeah. Like I, I think it's important to have dialogues. Like I think it's important to recognize that like we need to look about a look at how race 
plays into these different systems and other structures that are interact in our daily lives but at the same time we need to have discussions on like how how do we know what's too far like I as a black woman can say there are times where I look at people that are just too woke I'm like y'all like this is not I I, I care about other things <laughs> like right. I can appreciate that you're like trying to expand more diverse like his, you know historical events or more diverse authors or writers or whatever but at some point it's just like okay like let's let's take it back a notch and I think those conversations are important, but by banning it, like you said, Logan, you're taking that conversation off the table completely. Again, this shouldn't be something that we should be able to debate over, like, where's the line, but we shouldn't be debating on whether there is a, the line exists. It, it should be pretty clear that, like, race is a problem, has been a problem, not only in this country since its founding, but, like, honestly, around the world since, like, the beginning of time we need to have discussions about it. So I don't know. It's just a stupid, it's so stupid. <laughs> I don't understand why it's 2021 and we still have to argue over like whether racism is ended in 1965 or not. Each Florida legislator has to wrestle an alligator. Oh my God. And if they win, they get to vote. And if they lose, you don't get to represent Florida if you can't wrestle an alligator. So asking, asking Southern white people to believe in critical race theory is like asking Neo to unplug himself from the Matrix. Like you just... Yes, yes, that's a great example. And it's also, I think, the problem, in the, the problem in the South, too. I mean, okay, uh, there's many problems in the South. Let's, let's take it aside from, like, the decades long of uh, racial oppression. The diabetes. Is, and the diabetes. <laughs> but, it's, but there is a, I mean, so there's a high, like, there is a, we have a, a high population of poor white people. And so there's this idea that, well, I face injustice or I'm poor, I'm facing structural oppression. Therefore it can't be because they're black. You know, like I, I'm also poor. I've also been a victim of these systems. Therefore (laughs) racism can't exist. And it's like, like somebody to like, what if I told you there was a social system and an economic (laughs) system (laughs) by the other one? (laughs) Yeah. Like, okay. Some people are fucked by both. Both. Yeah. Now you see the pain. Jeez. But exactly. we can't teach that. You're not allowed to teach that, Gary. Can't teach that. They can't teach that. Yeah, I can't can't say that. I, I guess you can always circle it back to, okay, poor white person, but would you rather be black? Black. <laughs> and <laughs> no. Well, we're just gonna see more of this as the Republicans like frantically try to maintain their hold on power and maintain a majority in you know a lot of these states' legislatures as the country just moves more and more uh, blue. So good guy, bad guy, bad guy. I got the good good gal, I think, for two episodes in a row now. Um, hey. I'm actually going with a, a dark horse here. Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, uh, who paid no taxes in 2018, by the way. Mackenzie, mm-hmm. since getting her divorce, walked away with a record-breaking $47 billion in assets, billion with a B, and nine zeros. Mackenzie uh, has obviously right off the bat she understands she doesn't need that much money. She immediately, I think, pledges like $1.3 billion to charity as soon as she divorces final. Uh, this week, she actually comes back and donates another $2.7 billion. And at first, when I'm looking at it, I'd see the headline and I'm like, okay, just another billionaire just getting their tax exemption out of the way because they donated a lot of money to charity. Not really helping anything in the long run. 
So I'm like, okay, let me read the article and see like if she's kind of specifically targeting certain groups with that. Well, along with this donations that she made to like 200, over 280 organizations, charities that she donated to, she released a statement on Facebook. Um, and I have to say that Mackenzie Scott is a radical anti-capitalist. And I don't blame her because she has been on the other end of it. So you have like extreme poverty where people don't even have running water, sustainable housing, none of that. And Mackenzie was on the complete opposite side of it. You're the wife to the richest man in the world. You know, you can kind of do whatever you want. Simulation. Exactly. It's all a fucking game. So McKinsey wrote like a three paragraph like statement basically saying how like our entire economic system is broken. This amount of money that I have amassed is proof that the system is broken. I'm going to take it upon myself to give this money back to who it belongs to. Uh, she donated 2.7 billion, like I said, to over 280 at 80 organizations. It came out to about uh, 10 million each for each charity. Told you guys earlier, but I'll say it again. I think one organization coming out of Atlanta uh, that helps the homeless in Atlanta said that this is really going to revolutionize their ability to help at least advantage in that city. So Mackenzie Scott's going to be my um, good gal of the week. I, I wish we didn't have a system that needed billionaire charity to uh, rely on anything good happening, but till we get that changed, I uh, appreciate it, Mackenzie. Thanks for being a writer. Our bad guy is, you know, always solid choice for a bad guy. Senator Mitch McConnell, as we all presently pray, Justice Stephen Breyer decides to bow out at the end of this term. In case he chooses not to, Connell was asked, so, you know, if a seat opens up in 2024, would you try to hold that open? Of course, McConnell said yes. <laughs> he didn't exactly say yes. He said in the McConnell way, which was probably some snake slithering oh, shit. Hold it open. Well, if the opportunity and the Koch brothers say it needs to be done, then yeah, okay, get it done. And then when asked, well, what if there's a vacancy in 2023, he, would you take a similar approach? He essentially declined to answer, give an answer on um, that particular question, meaning yes. The he goddamn answer is yes. You, you're, bro, you're an obstructionist <laughs> now. Like, it, there's no waiting to 23. You're blocking shit now, bro. Yeah, yeah. Don't give me that. You know, everyone knows the Constitution says the president will appoint Supreme Court nominees with the advice and consent of the Senate. That's doesn't it. shit about there's, election years. Doesn't say anything about an election year. There was the time it was during the civil war mind you in lincoln's re-election where they were deciding if they you know there was a vacancy on the supreme court they did wait for lincoln to for the presidential election to occur would also point out that this vacancy was very close to the election not a year ahead of time also there was a whole war so i you know i think we can off. <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> like four sumter all over again so, so essentially, here's, here's the thing. You, the Senate is constitutionally obligated to hear and provide hearings to Supreme Court nominees. And I would say that even, you know, if we look at what happened in 2016 with the death of Justice Ginsburg and the appointment of Justice Barrett, like, yes, I agree that Justice Barrett was, should have been given a hearing. Now, I didn't think it should be rushed, and they rushed it. That's a whole other thing. But yes, you have to give them a hearing. Like, it is your job as the Senate in the Constitution to advise advising consent on supreme court nomination so mitch mcconnell fuck you i cannot wait for the day that you are not in the senate even though he just won re-election so you know why though do you know why because the turtle always wins the race slow and steady that's the the story as long as you're taking health care away from kentuckians it's all that matters 
Yeah, well, that's that slow and steady uh, road to hell. So right. hope it's mm. worth it. But by Mitch. announced a release the infrastructure uh, commercial video, and it featured heavy infrastructure from Kentucky that was degrading. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, that was definitely on purpose. Well, uh, that transitions us nicely to uh, the old Ike guy. Another state that needs infrastructure is West Virginia. Um, and y'all know where I'm going. Don't, don't mention Senate King. It is Joe one Manchin. thing. It is one thing. You know, I'm meeting with you, your fellow senator. I say, hey, I have these lists of demands I'd like to see in the bill, especially if you're Senator Manchin. And you know that you have a say of getting things passed or not. It's another thing to publicly publish your list of demands. Like a fucking ransom. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what I was thinking. So <laughs> Senator Manchin, who killed our hope at a voting rights bill, uh, has put out his list of things he'd like to see. Now, I don't have a problem with his list. I think it's a fine list. But it's the act of holding the Senate ransom, especially when 10 Republicans have already said they'd vote no to it. <laughs> So Manchin, we, King Manchin, we love you, we hate you, and uh, you got to chill the fuck out. You're the other guy. Without you. A much better vote-protected, infrastructured-up country. Oh, God. Maybe student loan forgiveness. And student loan forgiveness, yeah. That's not happening. I gave up on that. Do we have an honorary Nazi this week? We do. Oh, oh my gosh. We got so is that well, apparently, be a title honorary Nazi of the week. Well, you're not a Nazi if you go to the Holocaust Museum, apparently. Okay, that's true. So our girl Marjorie Taylor Greene, who compared mass mandates to the Holocaust, mm-hmm. decided to educate herself. Uh, <laughs> probably at the strong suggestion of her staffers to go to Kevin she, McCarthy she did, probably. and probably Kevin McCarthy <laughs> you had to pull that whip out <laughs> to take a stopover by the Holocaust Museum in DC where she she I guess presumably walked through the building and looked at all the exhibits came out and gave a press conference where she apologized for her her comments comparing the mask mandate to the Holocaust because she realizes that the Holocaust was a, a really tragic event and, and that it, it was uncalled for to compare wearing a mask to the genocide of millions of people that's such a Uh bold statement right i actually learned that in uh, seventh grade when i first learned about world war ii wow did you go to a private school no it was actually public education holy shit (laughs) underfunded public education i didn't realize you know also as a a child of public education i kind of just you know learned about the holocaust i was like hmm Sounds pretty that bad. Good. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't realize that it would. You know, there were people that needed to go to the Holocaust Museum to really understand the yeah. difference between a mass genocidal event that happened over years and a mass mandate. But if some she people got a lot out of that. She should watch Schindler's List. Or she should go to a concentration yeah. camp. I don't know. Yeah. She doesn't strike me as a uh, a fan of film. No, but I, I don't know if a concentration camp would let her on the grounds. Yeah, that's true. So uh, somewhere between our Ike guy and bad guy, or on our honorable Nazi, I kind of like that we should just... Honorable Nazi of the week. I'm looking at you next week, Matt Gates. <laughs> or uh, what's, what's his name in uh, North Carolina? Madison Cawthorn, I'm looking at you next week. What an idiot. I hope he loses in 2022. Uh, North Carolina's abortion, 20-week abortion ban got overturned. Well, the appeals court agreed with the lower court hmm. to, yeah. that, that it's unconstitutional. 
Well, because our appeals court is Democratic. If that thing goes up to the Supreme Court, then we might have a different. They also passed this other like abortion bill in the in the legislature that I'm sure my boy Roy is certain to veto. But you know, this happens ever so often. Wow, we haven't p- passed a budget in two years, but uh, what's up? And we have a six point five billion dollar surplus. Surplus, yeah, so yeah. Cooper I saw wants that. to take Governor Cooper for our non-North Carolina listeners. We'll pretend you're out there. <laughs> he has a they are. Cooper has. They are. They're out there. They're out there. They're popping. Bring he it. has a. He wants to take one billion of it, put it in the rainy day fund. All right, Boy. Carolina loves it. They love some rainy day funds. With the rest of the money, we could afford to give the Republicans their budget cuts and pass Cooper's budget. Burger's already saying they want to put it all in the rainy day fund. Burger is a piece of shit. Let's just say that. We have a surplus and we still can't pass a budget. I don't understand. I do not, for the life of me, understand. Though, for all of my people, our North Carolina listeners, got your vaccine, you've been entered into a chance to win a million dollars. There only four. That's bullshit. When's Florida doing that? Well, y'all just banned critical race theory. You can't be doing a million dollar scene lottery. <laughs> yeah. Do you? Do you really? What are you talking do about? Do you think DeSantis is going to hold a vaccine lottery? No. If anything, they'll be like, "Hey, if you're like the last, if you're in the last like fifth percentile not to get vaccinated, we'll give you a million dollars." Blonde hair, blue eyes only. <laughs> right. Yeah, so if you haven't got if you've gotten your vaccine, you've already been entered. If you haven't gotten it yet and you enter and you go get it now, you'll get entered twice. So if you need more Man, motivation. Bullshit, bro. You're punishing liberals. Why would we want to give well, Republicans a million dollars? You're just gonna go fucking okay, donate it to well, anti abortion shit. Well, I guess the other thing is the statistic if you're the likelihood <sighs> that you're gonna win does not go up by much if you waited. So <laughs> <laughs> might die from yeah. COVID. Or you could get a million bucks. <laughs> I uh, I'm, I don't I'm know that fucking my, virus ain't real. I'm hoping for my quick mill. So. Oh Jesus! All right, well, I'm gonna start my own lottery drive down here in Florida. I'll buy you a coffee or something to be. Okay. <laughs> That's so wholesome, Garrison. Twenty-five dollars Starbucks gift card to get vaccinated. John's got ten million in it already. That's all I got for this week. Anybody got anything else? Yeah. Hopefully, we're all off on Friday. Yeah. Let's hope we're all off on Friday. Yeah. Yeah. Juneteenth. Yeah. Happy Juneteenth. Turn up this weekend. Be safe. Do some if you don't know what Juneteenth is, research it, learn it. It's a good lesson. It's cool, uh, cool historical data in there. Uh, get your vaccine, don't watch Fox News. It's about all I got. Respect women. We're just gonna start throwing out other phrases here. Uh, where's the beef? <laughs> Drink. Uh, got milk. <laughs> Have it your way. Okay, we gotta get better on some outros. Let me tell you. Uh, we we had it. We had it good. I don't know what happened there. I'll just cut. That well, we did do it good.